I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice. Tumbling down the rabbit hole. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Deeper down to the rabbit hole. Real metaphysics. Cutting edge topics. Results-driven active spirituality. 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time live on the Parallax Network. Also available on podcast and the iTunes Store. Welcome. You're here listening to Deeper Down the Rabbit Hole. I'm here with my co-host Jason and our guest Tess, uh, whose books include Whisper of the Stone. Uh, she's an editor for Anointed. Uh, she, uh, in her book, laughed about it, or in, in Whispers of Stone, that she's one of the few that she can count with a handful of people who actually are Reconstructionist Canite religion, but I think it's going to be, as you hear today on the show, worthwhile, and more than that, has a lot of cultural impacts and impacts for us today, and there's a lot of myths that are just not right, a lot of kind of misinformation out there that we're going to correct. Uh, given the importance of this region in the world, uh, spawning both Judaism, uh, Christianity, and Islam, perhaps maybe it's time we take a look at that religion and the group of religions that were there before those religions started. Uh, before we start, we have a couple announcements. Jason and myself, although Jason will be a student, I think, um, not so much teaching the class, but Jason and myself will be teaching a Lamp Magic uh, Hoodoo workshop in Ferndale, Michigan. Uh, this Saturday and Sunday, I'll be around to do tarot readings and healings. Uh, that will be at the store of Jackie Smith, who was on the show, who had a class on candle magic. Uh, details are posted on andreavenomous.com, and we will also post details on Facebook um, and other places. If you're in Detroit, Ohio, uh, or around Pennsylvania, or around this area, I guarantee it'll be a worthwhile class to attend. We're not just going to talk about these things. We're going to do it. And with that, and without further ado, Tess, Jason, are you there? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you for coming on the show, Tess. I was very interested uh, after, oh, well, thank you also for uh, publishing my Tiamat article, uh, She Who Gets a Bad Name in Everywhere. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, in Anointed, and I kind of paraphrase this and kind of put it into context that you know, there was a lot of myths in this region before you even see the Hebrew or Phoenicians uh, or Judeo-Christian 
kind of hybrids that are coming, the more modern things, even come out there. But uh, one of the points that uh, I think is an interesting point to start out with is that this idea of monotheism um, as being, that was the way it is once there was Judaism is, uh, as you point out in Whisper of, Whispers of Stone, uh, kind of revisionist history. Yeah, it is. It sure is. Well, it's a certain group of people in power who want to make it look like their way has been the only way for a long time. Oh, yes. <laughs> I mean, in a lot of ways, I mean, when I actually read Anointed after I got it, I felt like I was reading a... Um, Let's correct all the misinformation that uh, many of us have had for years. And um, that was one thing that really struck out about that idea of revisionist history. And then, I mean, in Anointed, one of the biggest myths that you dispel, a myth that I've heard at every single, every single pagan festival that I've been at, was the myth of the Kadeshi. And perhaps. You could talk about that myth and the historical research about that myth and what Kadishi means. Sure, sure, I can cover that. Um, basically, there's if you trace things back to the Canaanite sources, you're basically looking at the Canaanite source material, which came out of the city-state of Ugarit, which dates back to about... 1200 BCE, so that's about 3,200 years ago. And the word Kaddish is used back then for a particular class of priests. And the only thing in these ancient texts that it says that these priests do, the only function that we know that they do, is that they sing and they recite the myths. That's all they do. You know, they may assist other priests, they may help with offerings and so on, but you'd think that if sacred sex were such an integral part of that religion, you would have more information about that. You know, in comparison, they have volumes of information written about what deity receives what offering and when. So what you're looking at is a vast silence. In, in my opinion, it cannot have been a key part of the religion if they didn't write anything about it when they wrote about many other things and in great detail. So basically the word Kaddish means holy. That's its most basic form. It means holy, sacred, consecrated. And it, later on in the Hebrew Bible, it becomes paired and used interchangeably with the word Zona, which means whore. And the whole idea behind it was to say that the Kaddish priests were committing a breach of contract with Yahweh, the God of Hebrews. So by committing this breach of contract, it, it's basically looking at the whole relationship with Yahweh as a marriage met metaphor, and that they strayed from that, therefore they're whores. So when they're saying Zona is the same as whore, when they're using the words interchangeably, that's what equation they're trying to make. And it just, it doesn't hold up when you look at what these priests originally did. So, you know, you add to that 
a little bit of Herodotus's writings, and he was basically writing a travel guide and writing down what he heard other people say and do. And then you add to that the whole festering stew pot of Victorian fascination for everything sexual, and they're wanting to put their own sexual repression. You know, they needed to explore their own sexual their own sexuality. And they could do this by looking at a different culture. So they would put all this onto another culture. Also, you have the idea that if these Canaanites were so evil that they were prostitutes, you know, you, you have a lot of... Uh, you have a way of looking at them and saying, look how evil they are and look how good the Hebrews are. So, you know, basically, it's a snidely whiplash type routine. You know, yeah, you yeah, see yeah. the Canaanite twisting their mustache going, ah, and the Hebrews going, I'm going to lock up your daughter. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. And even though they are basically the same people with, uh, you, you know, that a lot of the Hebrews had Canaanite ancestry. I mean, that, that gets into a point which I think after looking at some of these books and materials and doing the research for the show, I think we're going to have a lot of talk about revisionist history. I mean, one right. of the things we talked about before the show, and, and Jason, me and you have talked about this a lot, is, is the Goetia and various uh, Catholic grimoire materials uh, that use the names that I saw over and over and over when doing the research in a way that demonizes their form. Uh, yeah. Literally, those demons, some of the demons, the exact names, Baal is one of the big ones, Dagon's another. There's probably many more than I can count. Uh, and maybe you could talk about that, the kind of politics of religion that these gods were probably end up now in a modern form, not end up in a modern form. There's kind of a political attack going on with what is and is not a demon in Western Christian-based magic. Oh, sure. Yeah, there's, um, there's a lot of that weirdness going on, to tell you the truth. <laughs> what you have in uh, the Hebrew Bible uh, is basically Ilu. Uh, I should go back a little ways and say that Ilu and El are thought to be the same god, okay? And El is thought to be the god of the Bible. However, you have that scene where Moses is at the burning bush, and El reintroduces himself as yad heh vav -Hey, the Tetragrammaton, the four letters, you know, however you want to call that, the unpronounceable name. Um, so at that point, what you're seeing is a lot of different uh, Canaanite deities who are coalescing into the character Actually, they're not the ones coalescing. The authors are coalescing those characters into one deity. Like, you'll see talk about how uh, El or Yah Yahweh, how he built... I shouldn't say Yahweh, because there is a very strong difference in characteristics between the two by the time you hear about Yahweh. Now, does that make sense to you? Absolutely. I mean, I, I've certainly read some myths that um, Yahweh... And these could be wrong. You are the expert. I just have read some myths <laughs> where Yahweh was the brother of Baal and 
it wasn't really yeah. clear who had dominion in the first place, but right. all of a sudden Yahweh is the one that has dominion. Right. Well, here's what happened is um, Baal is told is taught, well, I should say Baal Hadad or Baalu Hadi built his palace in the sky, in, in the clouds, and you see later on Yahweh building his sacred palace too. So there was a lot of cut and pasting of the Ugaritic literature. And it, it's, it makes for an interesting stew pot because you try to separate out all these different threads and it just turns into a big old spaghetti mess. Now you'll see, uh, now what you were talking about, Baal Haddad and Yahweh being brothers, that there might have been some confusion on that part because Baal Haddad is from a different family than the rest of the Canaanite pantheon. And some people say that Yahweh has a lot of characteristics in common with Yom, the Canaanite sea god. Yom, Yom the Canaanite sea god, is seen as brash and self-centered and at least in Canaanite literature, doesn't really care too much about human well-being. And Baal Haddad and Yom fight. They fight it out in uh, Canaanite literature. Oh, that's it. We're, we're, we're going to get banned now. That's it. We just we compared Yahweh to uh, evil deity. Oh, we're no. done. Oh, no. We're done. Bring that's out it. the pitchfork. Oh, no. Bring out the Okay. You know, if you're going to try and feather me, can it be like hot fudge and feathers or fur, you know? Something. That, that would be so much better than tarring and feathering, i got to say. I, I, th I, think you, I think you're right. And you know what? You know what? The transition away from kind of the bad things, I asked you ahead of time to kind of read a poem, and, well, the poem kind of goes along with the luxury instead of the, the hurt. Um, right, right. So, so why don't we take a moment to actually, you know, because we're contrasting these things and uh, when you read your writings online, you read a lot of the stuff that I can see on Facebook, you know, and, and what I see in Anointed, uh, there's a lot of love that you can see come across in the art form that you express towards uh, the very various deities. And I think there's no better way for us to show our listeners that kind of love that you have towards these deities other than to allow you to read a poem where you express that towards them. Well, sure, I'd love to. All right, this is called Bejeweled, and it's a prayer to Nakalu for abundance. And Nakalu is the orchard goddess. She marries Yariku, the moon god, just so that you all have a slight little frame of context there. Nakalu. The heavy carnelian pomegranate swing. Nikalu, the jade and onyx beaded olive branches chatter. Nikalu, the dark amber adorned date palm sighs. Nikalu, the golden apricots chime. Nikalu, the mother of pearl almond blossoms burst. The oldest music in the world is written for you, O oh Nikalu. The Hurrian hymn from Canaanite Ugarit, Thou, the goddess, lovest them in my heart, Wesel Dati Tisia. All sweet fruits are born of thee, Wewa Hanaku. The honeyed fruit nectar on our lips, 
the soft pulp on our tongues, the sweetened seeds beneath our teeth, the joy in our livers. With the silver moon, your husband, Yarichu's night dew, you are fertile. With Motu's deadly heat, your fruit continues to ripen. O daughter of Herhib, lord of summer, Nikalu Wa'ibru, the bejeweled one, each pomegranate is a seed in your crown, a ruby in your circlet. You are resplendent. Bless my garden. Bless my orchard. Bless my family. Bless my coffers. Bless my growth. Bless my community. Bless us all with your abundance. Thou lovest our world in your heart. Well, thank you. That was very beautiful. Jason, I think very I mean, that was very beautiful. Oh, thank you. And I think, I think that poem, I think I chose that poem because out of the same region that you see religions that are very much religions based on restriction, here you see a true, and you can tell by the words and even the way you read it, that uh, you have a connection with this goddess, you very much love this goddess, you have a relationship with this goddess, okay. it comes across when you read it, uh, and the care that you took in writing it, and it's an interesting contrast because this uh, is so different from uh, the other religions that have uh, come out of that area. Uh, well, and I think ideally those other religions wouldn't be that way. It just has to do with the corruption of people in power. Because I have seen really good and kind Christians, and I've seen really good and kind Jews, and they are not like the people screaming from the pulpit. So, I have to ask, I have to take a step backwards for a moment. Sure. What, what started this interest for you? What got you into Canaanite religion in the first place? Well, um, back around winter of 1998, you know, when dinosaurs ruled the earth, or such. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. I don't, I don't think either me or Jason are that young that we could say that back back in 1988 when dinosaurs ruled I, the earth. I graduated high school in 95, so... Uh, I'm, not gonna, I'm not going to say anything like that. I'm just not going to give it away. When grunge ruled the earth, or shortly thereafter... There you go. There, there you go. <laughs> no, I, um, I had uh, been trying to connect with the divine for a long time. You know, when I was younger, I was trying to connect with the divine through my, my Christian roots, and I just could not find that connection. I felt the connection, but I didn't feel it reflected in my experiences with the church. Now, having said that, I didn't really have too many bad experiences with church. It just didn't fit. You know, like that pair of jeans that you can wear, but you just don't like them, you, they're uncomfortable, just didn't fit. Sure. So I, I went off in search of what I, what I could believe myself. That's very much what was important to me. What did I believe? not what did I try to force myself to believe. And I went through a period where I was quasi-Wiccan, quasi, 
eclectic pagan with Wiccan leanings. Uh, I kind of looked into heathenry just a little bit, but nothing really suited me. And I felt like there was more to the story than the goddess and the god and all the other deities are mask of the goddess and the god because I didn't connect with that. It didn't feel right to me. It felt uh, impersonal and it felt cold to me. It felt unfilling. So I kept praying, just sending out prayer out there saying, hey, here, here I am. Hi, how are you? Pick me, pick me. <laughs> and in winter of 1998, I was kind of at the end of my rope spiritually. I was getting to the point where I thought, you know, maybe, maybe the divine is just so vast I can't possibly communicate or receive communication in that sense. Maybe, you know, there wasn't a divine trying to communicate at all. And I was almost to the point where I was agnostic. I don't think I could ever really be atheist because that doesn't, it, it doesn't ring true to me at all, and it never did. Sure. Right. Um, There's something out there that you're trying to put your thumb on what that something is. Right, right. And I finally got an answer. And I heard the answer in my mind, and I thought, okay, that's interesting. I asked if anybody out there, and I heard, I am. I heard, does anyone care? I do. I thought, okay, this is new. <laughs> no, no, I mean, okay. actually, like, the, the truth is that uh, a lot of religions, and, and that includes, um, in some cases, Santeria and Voodoo, uh, that includes uh, some of the, uh, a lot of the stuff where uh, the spirits call, I mean, there's a lot of traditions that basically say, the spirits call to you and kind of make themselves known and that uh, it's not the other way around it's not uh, although we would like to think it is that way that well we just decide there's a lot oh, of yeah. a, a lot of traditions that actually go as far to say hey no the spirits choose you and absolutely and as you listen more to the to the particular spirits uh, that are calling to you, your life generally changes and improves. Uh, there's, yeah, really I mean, does. that that's really, uh, if anything, that that's that's something that I've heard in multiple traditions, and when I do my research, so it's not at all unusual what you're describing. It just happens that, especially oh, yeah. when you when you're describing in, in whispers of stone, that at first it was an entity that you didn't even know was an entity. I, yeah. I didn't even know. I hadn't even heard that name, and I heard a name in my head because I wanted that tangible proof. I wanted to know for sure that it isn't just, say, for instance, myself giving myself the best advice that I could and trying to dress it up in divine clothing. Um, yeah, I wanted tangible proof. I wanted to make sure that I was actually receiving some sort of communication, and it turned out to be the name of a goddess that I had never heard of before. So for me, that that was a watershed event. Well, that is very interesting. Uh, may we ask what the name was? Yeah, yeah. What I heard was, uh, she... Just like that, like a breeze. 
and I thought, hmm. that's interesting. Okay, let me try all of the different various spellings I can come up with for this. And it turned out to be the name of the Israelite goddess who translates into the Canaanite deity, Asiret. So the head mother goddess of the pantheon. Hmm. Okay. And when I say did, mother goddess, I'm talking the... queen mother. Okay, now, now was that first statement the Israelite goddess? Yes. Yes, That's there was a time. Off. Yeah, there was a time when there was a goddess right alongside Yahweh, and Asherah was her name. And oh. she was portrayed mm, by yes. a long straight pole. That was one of her symbols. And of course, around the Reformation, according to biblical sources, Hezekiah threw a hissy fit and had all of those Asherim, the Asherah poles, burned. Well, we go back to the revisionist history uh, commentaries there. Uh, Absolutely. It's kind of interesting because the role of devotion and uh, the role of creating relationship with these gods, maybe you could talk, and goddesses, maybe you could talk about, you know, how you worked at these relationships and the benefits that you had. I mean, we had uh, a shaman, we had Shaman Jim on the show, or I should say Shaman James, because that's what he usually is, but um, he also talked about that, about how he formed relationships with these spirits and how his life changed. And maybe you could tell our audience how you started working with this, you heard the call, and how your life changed. Sure. I, when I heard that call, I, of course, tried to honor the deities as best I could. At that point in time, it meant trying to patch things together because I had very little information that I knew. Actually, I knew next to nothing. And I had uh, one website I could rely on a bit. Lulena, uh, actually, I should say her name's Lulena Vidyanath. She has a wonderful website, Kadashkinachno, which was up and running when I heard the call back in 1998. And although she goes in a slightly different direction than I do, reading her material definitely helped. And it helped give me a book list and uh, a place to begin to research and find out what was really going on, what was really the story. So I would make offerings, I would make prayers, and I would do a lot of research to try to grow in my understanding. And I came to realize that for me, honoring them in a quasi-pagan type, eclectic Wiccan framework wasn't giving me the connection and wasn't um, honoring the deities as best I could in my situation. I felt like they wanted something more, and I felt like if they wanted something more, then it was incumbent on me to try to give them that. And it's, I get the sense that when they are given offerings, they're, they become more powerful and they are more able to help you and it solidifies the relationship. But you can't expect them to give, give, give you what you want if you never give to them in return, if you never call their names, if you never 
uh, make offerings to them, why should they bother? It's like going up to a rich man on a street corner saying, hey, give me a million bucks. He's going to laugh at you. Or call the police on you one or two. Wait, Tess, Tess, you you mean that all the gods and goddesses aren't just Santa Claus? To give no, us, oh, no, okay. no, they're not. I know, I'm talking. I'm talking. Oh my goodness. Oh man, that's it. I'm going to go cry. I, I can't believe it. I know. I wrote a blog post on it called The Gods Are Not Your Personal Biatch. And I truly believe that. they, The gods are not in place to serve you, it's the other way around. It's the other way around. So. Now, now interesting enough, I mean. We, we, we could, of course, and I have gone round and round with, you know, you know, Jason and various other people about this. Um, although, like, even in my book, Hands on Chaos Magic, even though I say there may not be an ultimate truth, I still tell people, well, hey, guess what? Relationship works better than demanding. Um, yeah, it does. Uh, yeah, be- it does. Because if you don't have a relationship, you don't have any real means for them to vibrate out into the world anyway. I mean... Yeah, it's like cold calling. It's like cold calling the divine. You know, if they don't recognize the phone number, they're not going to pick up on the phone. Unless you make a lot of noise. Then they might. (laughs) Yeah, and then you might not like what they have to say to you. (laughs) There's something. People put out that call and they don't always know what they're going to get back. Yeah, it's true. Why is my life sucking? Well... You tell me, why is your life sucking? I've seen people uh, do things to dishonor the spirits uh, that may or may not be projections of our mind. Okay, well, we can argue that on a different show. But I've seen them do that. (laughs) uh, We've uh, I've seen them do that in ritual space and lose ten thousand dollars the next day, or some, or some like just crazy stuff. I've also seen it when people were in ritual space honoring the various forces that came out right get a miracle happen. So I've seen it kind of, I've seen it go both ways. I think Jason has yeah. too. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah it's hard to stuff to deny. Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Jason. Oh, you know, I was just saying when you're, when you're doing rituals, working with certain pantheons um, you definitely do get tangible results and it, it's hard to deny those coincidences I mean sometimes you just know that odds have been broken and it was in direct correlation to the honoring of a particular god form or lack thereof as I was uh, demonstrating <laughs> well luckily you and I have been on the receiving end of that part of it but we have seen other people who have been Yes, yes, we have. I've seen a lot of people, actually, in various rituals, at least the ones that I run, that they treat it like a joke and yeah, things yeah. happen. And you can't do that, you know? You, you just can't. You're going to get smacked. Well, if you're dealing with somebody who has a, the, the cell phone number, right, you know, <laughs> and, and they've called them and showed up, you're, you're right. It very well could end in a smacking, bad smacking. Or they could send a minion to do the smacking. Yeah, or a minion. Or or multiple minions. I love minions. I need minions. Oh, well, we'll talk after the show. (laughs) (laughs) You know, minions. 
millions. That raises an interesting question. Is there anything in this pantheon that correlates to the angels, um, the messengers of the gods, something of that nature? Not quite, but there are deities who do send messages. Uh, for instance, Lady Shapsha, the sun goddess, she will send messages for Ilu, the head god of the pantheon. Ilu will give her a message and say, send this message on to XYZ deity somewhere, and that's what she will do. But that makes sense if you think that there's very few places on Earth where the sun doesn't touch. So there are also, um, well, and she goes from the sky above to the underworld at night and back again. So she travels a great deal. And there are other deities such as Gatham and Ugar who are the messengers for Baal Haddad. So these two, uh, these two gentlemen, I should say, one, one of them, his name, Gatham, means vine, and Ugar means field, and they will carry Baal's message to other deities. So they will, what they will do is, Baal will give them a message to deliver. He will tell them, instruct them what to do when they get there, and then instruct them in what the message is, and then send them on the merry way. And then the literature will go through that whole process again when they reach the person that they're trying to deliver the message to. And a lot of times it's accompanied by a technique called prostration, where you will flatten yourself before the other person on the ground, bowing your head so far that your head touches the ground. Mm -hmm. And what, what is significant in that is that even the deities bow to other deities when they enter the other deity's home. Mm. Like oh, or not. That so is it's almost this mutual, mutual respect of different domains. Absolutely it is. And the one time that that was screwed up, Yamu the sea god had instructed his messengers to go to the mountain of the assembly of gods where they were all meeting, and he instructed them not to bow. So they're avoidance of bowing, of prostrating themselves at the feet of their host, was a grave insult. And it took the combined efforts of Astartu and Anatu, two very strong goddesses of war and balance, if you will, to restrain Baal Haddad from striking down these messengers for their insolence, and to turn injury into insult these two messengers demanded that the deities there in the assembly give up Baal Haddad into Yom's grasp so that Yom could subdue him and take all of his silver, all of his gold, all of his wealth, and thereby Yom could become the sole ruler over the earth. And some people oh. see this as kind of a cosmological tale of how the seas do not cover the earth because it turned out that, the, that Baal Haddad ended up fighting with Yom, the sea god. And it was with a little help from Kafiwa Hasif, the craftsman, technology, and magic god, that 
Ba'al was able to overcome Yom. He uses two magic weapons, their war clubs or maces. So we think they're handled objects with weights at the end. And one was named a driver and one was named chaser. So Ayamare and Yagarush. And he let loose with the first one. I believe it was Ayamare. And it flew from his hand and it struck Yamu on the temple, but it didn't subdue him. It weakened him, but it didn't completely subdue him. So then he sent off the other one. The other one flew from his hand like an eagle, Ayamare, chaser, and it hit Yamu right on the back between the shoulder blades, and it caused the sea god's knees to buckle, and he fell to the ground, vanquished, at least for a time. That's the thing. It's always for a time. These divine forces are always in a system of checks and balances. So sometimes you'll see from a mythological point of view, Yama will rise up again in the form of floods and tsunamis and hurricanes. And sometimes you'll see Motu, which is another deity, a god that Baal Hadad fights. Motu is the god of death and sterility and desert. So when drought covers the land, then Motu is in power. And Baal Haddad reigns over, well, the rain. So when you have the right amount of rainfall, that's Baal Haddad taking care of the land. Mm. Mm. Well, it's kind of interesting because that story leads into one of the things uh, that I was actually interested in that, uh, well, I, I, I couldn't get from the preview of Whisper, Whispers of Stone that I had access to is the, the power of naming and the story of the golems and uh, in, in Canite religion. Because uh, the story that you just kind of told, it seemed like the naming of the clubs was, was important too. Yeah, yeah, it can be. It can definitely be. What, what a name gives is a mission to the object or to the being. And there's a, there's a story where Ilu, the chief god of the pantheon, actually creates a god. There's a particular king who has fallen ill because he reneged on a vow to a ferret, which, by the way, is a really stupid thing to do. She actually waited seven years before she struck him down with a mortal illness. So when he became mortally ill, of course, all the people were praying for his well-being and for his health. And Ilu's looking around the assembly of deities going, hey, will anyone answer this call? Will anyone help this man? And it's my opinion that nobody wants to cross the spirit. She's usually a very benevolent goddess. But if you've reneged on a vow for seven years standing, you kind of got it coming to you. So none of the gods come forward and offer to help Ilu out in healing this king who's dying. So Ayla takes it upon himself to create a golem from clay. And a lot of times the uh, translators will translate the form of the golem as a dragon, which may or may not be exactly like how we typically envision a dragon. My thought is it might be a little closer to the Chinese version where it's long and serpentine. 
Um, so he creates this dragon out of clay. And in order to animate this dragon, he gives her a name, Shatakatu. And he raises his glass to her, his cup of blessing, and he blesses her. And her name, Shatakatu, means she who causes illness to pass. So by raising his cup to her and blessing her, and by giving her this name with this mission encoded in it, it animates her and makes her able to do the mission that he asked her to do. So she flies to his window, and you're going to love this. She takes some kind of wand, like a magic wand, and she releases the knot of illness in King Kartu's temples, and she opens up his throat, and the throat is connected to the idea of soul. It's where your soul is rooted in Canaanite theology. So if your throat is closed, you lack vitality. If your throat is open, you have more vitality. And it's this vitality, this nopshu, that actually enables you to do magic. So it runs on a different concept than just it's the regular New Age concept of energy. So she opens his throat and makes him healthy again, wipes the fever sweat from his brow, and he's able to basically come back to life after being near the grave, being near the sunset of his life, as they say. Well, there's, there's a lot that you could think about in that story. Mm-hmm. Um, Tons. String and knot magic, magic wands. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. The power of naming and, and naming and encompassing purpose. Absolutely. One of the, Absolutely. One of the things is that, because um, just because you make a point of it in, in Whispers of Stone about the golden calf uh, orgy scene and the Ten Commandments and how uh, fictionalized uh, that was. And maybe you could tell us a little bit about that because that's another incident of the revisionist history in a way. Um. Sure. Yeah, that scene is about as real as the plated gold paint on the cow. Well, actually, I should say bull because cow is different and don't ask me how I know that I spent too much time around farm animals not like that get your mind out of the gutter <laughs> hey, we, we, we didn't go there you went there um, wow we didn't even go there I know I, well don't go there oh my goodness <laughs> so anyway no the idea of the sacred golden cow or the bull in that case it, in my opinion, may have come more from Egyptian ideology, which is what they were immersed in at the time, or it was poorly remembered Canaanite religion. So you got to remember, there was about a 400-year gap between when tales were written down and when Canaanite, was pre- Canaanite religion was prevalent. The Canaanites wrote about their own religion in their own text. We have primary tablets. We have about 1,500 of them. But when the Hebrews write about Canaanite religion, it's a dream. It's a dream 400 years old at that point. 
handed down oh. this oral tradition. And at that point, it's a combination of Egyptian religion, Babylonian religion, and poorly remembered Canaanite religion, and what they want to say about Canaanite religion to prove that it's all evil. So you're not going to get the truth of Canaanite religion from the Bible. There might be bits and pieces and kernels that are interesting, but if you really want to know Canaanite religion, you have to go back to the Ugaritic text. And we have far more of those than, say, for instance, Celtic texts. The Celts didn't write anything down. So their religion is more based on oral history written down by someone else years later. When we have the ability to actually go back to the primary documents, which is a real blessing. That is a blessing that there's not many traditions that have that blessing anymore. Mm -hmm. Okay, so these are documents that are older than the Hebrew Bible. Yes, they are, by a great deal. By a great deal. And like I said, there's about 1,500 of them. So, you know, it's less than Greece and Rome and Egypt and Babylon, but it's a whole lot more than a lot of other cultures have. Especially that old. Exactly. Now, this leads me to another question. Um, What truth is there, or fairy tale, to the idea that the worshippers of Baal, that Baal had a, uh, a bullhead, I believe, well, here's the thing. There are lots of different Baalim, or Baaluma. There's okay. lots of different deities named Baal. So you'll hear me and I'll say Baal Hadad, or Balu Hadi, which is the same deity, but with a different translation of the name. So Ugaritic versus Hebrew. Um, every local city tended to have their own local Baal. Baal simply means Lord. So every mountain, if you can imagine this, had its own Baal. If you have a mountain near you, you have your own Baal. And so we live in Ohio. I think of, we have mohills. That's about it. <laughs> 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 but uh, yeah, there are lots of different deities named. Baal, because it simply means Lord. Baal okay, Hadad so is what? the Lord's thunderer, and he's the one that everybody thinks of when they think of Baal. Okay, so I didn't know if the biblical references to Baal, if that just rendered them completely generic, or if there was actually a bit more of a historicity there. There's both. Sometimes they referred to all these, quote, foreign, end quote, deities, which weren't really that foreign, as Baalim just to say they're not our deities, they're the other's deities. The other guy's lord, not ours. Sure. Exactly. So they call them Baalim to kind of bring the mind to an idea of evil Canaanite religion. So you've got a lot of that going on. Now, a lot of times if they're talking about Baal singular in the Bible, it may very well be in reference to Baal Hadad because he was the strongest and most well known of the Baalim. Okay. Is that clarified clear as mud? No, yeah, well, actually, that helps a great deal. That's very interesting. I, I never knew there was that much backstory behind all that. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, and it's very difficult sometimes to understand if a Baal that is written about, say, in Phoenician literature, if he's the same or a different manifestation of Baal Hadad, or is he a different deity altogether. Sometimes they blend, and sometimes they get merged, and sometimes they knew who the heck they were praying to, but they didn't write it down. So we're left not knowing their vision of what this particular deity was, if he was the same as Baal Haddad, or if he was different. Certainly. It's, it's, it's almost like a, uh, a grimoire of sorts. It's a grammar that you're using, and you're writing down, my lord, my lord, my lord, and you know who your lord is, but the guy walking in right. 100 years from now has no clue. Exactly, and he's wondering, well, my lord, that's what a lot of times uh, the Hebrews call their deity. So he's talking about the God of the Bible, right? Maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> you know, it's not like, uh, well, there's also other things, too, where we have going on in our everyday life that we don't even think about, that we don't think to write about. Like, how does a light switch work? You know, how many times if you're writing a journal do you even bother to write down, I turned on the light? And you don't describe how you turned on the light or how that electricity and the wires in the wall and the light bulbs actually work. Which I'm sure... You know how it works. 10,000 years from now, 10,000 years from now, I'm sure people will look at the writings and our writings and think, (laughs) <laughs> what's this Nike or you know what's this uh, you know TV what's that yeah. is TV their god yeah absolutely um, absolutely or they'll think that text speak was a common language yeah yeah <laughs> you mean it's not uh, no lol 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 oh lol drives me nuts <laughs> it was a short drive it truly was <laughs> one of the things about anointed that struck me as as a whole was really um and we kind of touched on this with the poem a little but the the aspect of using beauty and art not only as a devotional thing but as a means to connect uh, with these forces. It's a repeated theme, like I said, over and over and over, repeated theme and anointed uh, across the board through other people that I've seen in uh, Can I Thing. I see it in your altars when I look at them. Um, having set up altars that take hours to uh, put up, I know what an altar looks like that takes hours to put up. Um, I can attest to this, yes. Yeah, well, uh, I'll believe it. Um, and, and maybe with the last nine minutes we have, uh, or so, you could talk about that, the, the role of art, poetry, and beauty in the, the, the religion, and how we can apply that perhaps even to our own relationships with spirits. Yeah, in Canaanite religion, the image of the divine is very important. When I say the religion of the divine, I mean the different deities, singular because I believe that they are all different beings and different and full in their own right. And having that image of the divine 
on the altar, having those images of the deities on your altar is a very sacred thing. It gives your mind focus. Now, having said that, you don't worship the images themselves. You worship the deity that that image represents. It's like not worshiping a picture of Jesus. It's worshiping Jesus, for a lack of a better analogy that most people would understand off the top of their heads. Um, so having that image of a deity on the altar is a very important thing for Canaanite religion because it, it offers you a place where you can make your offerings, where you can focus on that deity, where you can interact with them. And the image itself is considered divine if you treat it in that manner. Like for me in my situation, I don't use deity images as a form of art everywhere in my house. I would feel uncomfortable with that because I feel like within that image, it can house the divine or a certain spirit of the divine. So I want to treat it with the respect that the divine deserves. So that art is an expression of the divine and it it helps you focus and it also serves as an inspiration to you now does that make sense to you oh absolutely okay okay i don't want to be like clear off in left field and you guys are left going where the heck did she go oh no we would bring (laughs) you back you know we're good we usually go in left field and people wonder what are you guys doing um but i I seen that 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 role of 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 art and beauty, and it really struck me with the poem I chose. But actually, all the poems in Anointed were very beautiful, and all the artwork's very beautiful. And, yeah, the, the poems know. are a form of prayer, and indeed Canaanite literature is written in a poetic form. If you actually read Ugaritic literature, translations of it, they will sound extraordinarily repetitive, and you're wondering why they did this. Well, it was a, it was a poetic form. It was their way of showing respect. And it carries over into the Bible where you'll see the same idea stated two or three times and you think, well, why are they stating this two or three times? Well, it's because it was a poetic form. It was as common back then as rhyme is to us. So it's, the Bible is a form of plagiarism in some regards, actually in many regards. Um, but the, the poetry serves as a prayer. And it also serves as an offering to honor those deities. And to read the prayer or the poem aloud or to read it silently is to engage those deities and make that offering once again. That's right, guys. We we, we asked the goddess to give us blessings of prosperity. So there you go. Well, you asked one particular goddess. That's right, one particular goddess. <laughs> I, I don't mean the goddess, the goddess. I mean, uh, we, could, we could go on and on and about that. I mean... Um, oh, my goodness, yeah. That's its own show, right? <laughs> that, that is its own... Well, we actually had that show uh, when somebody talked about the history of Wicca um, a little bit, and that was uh, Shadow. So, yeah, they were very much. Uh, one of the last things, because I know you brought it up as, as, as a kind of pain point, that, that uh, how one of the gods is the moon god and the yeah. sun is a female and how how often uh you've really 
had trouble uh, with when oh. you're dealing with Western, Western pagans because that oh is so God. ingrained in our thinking. Even though I pointed out in Hinduism, it's also that way. But um, and in Japan, it's that way too, if I understand correctly. Yeah, it probably is actually. Um, but that was an interesting thing that you raised earlier about how certain aspects of really the Western religions are so set in stone, even in and kind of uh, that go back to ceremonial magic and and certain takes in Judaism. Yeah, yeah. It. Uh, I've gotten a lot of flack about that, and I just have to look at them dead in the eye and say, "What about the man in the moon?" You, I know you've heard about the man in the moon. And I actually had a British traditional witch, nothing against the BTW trad, nothing at all. This was just one individual who actually pat me on the back and said, no, 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 honey, you're wrong. And I said, excuse me? I know that I have a moon god. I've done the homework. I've done the research. I know what I'm talking about. It says in these ancient texts, moon god. There's no doubt about his gender in the ancient text. And this poor fellow just could not wrap his head around it. And, you know, one of those attitudes that's so difficult for me to deal with is that patronizing attitude. And I run across it a lot. Like, wait a minute, do you honestly think that I'm just coming up with this? And I try to give them the resources where possible, but it, it's that patronizing attitude. Oh, it drives me loco. <laughs> oh, I'm certain. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm certain. I, I mean, I know about that. Now, we have about two minutes or so left. Um, do you have any way people can get in contact with you if they want more information or, or any parting words? We have your some of your books on, on the website, deeperdowntherabbithole.com, uh, that people can buy them right off the website. But maybe if you have any contact information so people can learn more. Sure. I'm on canaanitepath.com, C-A-N-A-A-N-I-T-E-P-A-T-H. Dot com. I believe I spelled that right. Correct me if I'm wrong, guys. <laughs> it's been a long time since I've been in a spelling bee here. Um, I'm at CanaanitePath.com. I'm also available on Facebook, and I'm also available through contact at CanaanitePath.com. So you can reach me there. I also have a blog at TessDawson, all one word, dot blogspot, dot com. So I'm pretty much everywhere. Well, there you go. Well, I want to thank you for coming on today. Uh, if you could just hang on the line for a second. Uh, I'd like to thank the Illuminist out there again for the music. And with that, I wish you guys all a good night. And next week, Raven Digitalis, my friend, will be on the show. If you're in Michigan, come out and see us. Or around this area, come out to see us in Detroit for the Hoodoo Lamp Workshop. And with that, I wish you guys all a good night.